Today we are looking at chapter 5 of Joshua. At this point in our story, the Israelites have crossed the Jordan River. They've invaded the land. They have started to take hold of the promised land, the inheritance that God promised to their ancestor Abraham. And at this point in the story, they are camped uh, on the plains in front of Jericho. And I would expect that the next thing we read is God saying to Joshua, muster the troops. Get ready to attack Jericho. Let's take it down. But instead, there's this entire chapter devoted to uh, the spiritual part of Israel's relationship with God. And the, the action sort of slows down, and God focuses on ensuring that the relationship between Israel and himself is healthy and strong, and only then, only after that takes place, do they march on Jericho. Uh, and so the big principle that I see in chapter 5 is this. If you want to win spiritual battles, you've got to have God fighting on your side. And the only way you're going to have God fighting on your side is if you're living in obedience to Him. This whole time we have been saying that the promised land for the Christian represents a life free from the dominion of sin. A life of um, unhindered fellowship with God, the fruit of the Spirit in your life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. If you want that kind of a life, you, it only comes when God is fighting for you and helping you win the spiritual battles. And that doesn't happen unless we are living in right relationship with the Lord, unless we're being obedient to Him. So, if you want to grow in Christ's likeness, if you want to throw off the shackles of sin in your life, if you want more of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, then uh, you need to stop and make sure that your relationship with God is healthy. Uh, that's the priority. And if you will press into the Lord and you will uh, ensure that you're in right relationship with Him, then you will begin to see victory, spiritual victory in your life. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Joshua chapter 5 starting in verse 2. At that time, which is immediately after they cross the Jordan River, uh, they're now in the land, and they set up those 12 memorial stones. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, muster the troops, let's fight. That's not what he says. He said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. I, I got to wonder, you know, if you ask Joshua, predict what the next thing God's going to tell us to do. I doubt he would have come up with this. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. What is circumcision? Uh... I had a Bible class in high school, and there was this girl in the class who, according to the boys, every year, so I, I entered the school my sophomore year, her hand goes up, what is circumcision? And all the boys groaned, and they said, she asked that every year. 
Circumcision is the cutting off of the foreskin of the penis. Yes, and it is the sign of the covenant. God is the one who came up with this, and he said to Abraham, um, I want you and all the men in your line to be circumcised, and that physical act uh, will be the sign of the covenant between you and me. And so we read about this in Genesis chapter 17, verse 9, and God said to Abraham, So this is hundreds of years earlier, right? Hundreds of years earlier, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This doesn't stop. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. So, how old? How old are they supposed to be? Eight days old. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who's born in your house, he who's bought with your money, shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting Covenant, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's a big deal to God. So for hundreds of years, from the time of Abraham all the way down to the time of Moses, apparently the Israelites circumcised their, their sons. But then something happened. Uh, while the people were wandering in the wilderness, they stopped circumcising their children. And so, they are not in obedience, uh, in full obedience to God, right? There's a problem. God has told them. Everybody needs to be circumcised. All the boys need to be circumcised. And if not, they're, they're cut off. They're not a part of, they're not my people. They are kind of, through their disobedience, through their rebellion, they are separating themselves from me. And so it is very important that we get current with our obedience. Got to get current with your obedience. Uh, And sometimes we're unaware that we're not current with our obedience. When I was 17 years old, I was sitting in church, a happy Baptist, and someone finally told me, the preacher uh, said, by the way, Jesus commanded that you get baptized. So if you haven't been baptized, but you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, so you're a Christian, but you're not baptized, you're not in full obedience. And I was like, what? Uh, I thought you just got baptized when you got around to it, when it felt right. Uh, and, but I got up that day and I went down and I said, baptize me today. I don't want to be I want to get current with my obedience, and that's certainly a modern application for us. And so if you are a Christian and you haven't been baptized, get out of your seat and get baptized. Of course, I can't do it today, but I could next week or Thursday. That's the closest, right? But there are other things, you know, oh, yeah, I know I'm supposed to, I know I'm supposed to get current with my taxes. I'll do that someday when it's convenient. 
I know there's this broken relationship that I, I could do some things to, you know, heal. But uh, maybe someday, not right now. You know what? When you, when you are knowingly un- uncurrent uh, with, with your obedience, there's a hindrance to your relationship with the Lord, and it's going to show up in, in your spiritual life. You will not be having the same spiritual victory that you would have otherwise. So as soon as the Holy Spirit reveals to you uh, an area of disobedience, act and get current and trust God. We'll talk about that in a moment. You, just tr- you have to trust God to take care of you as you obey. So, why flint knives, by the way? I don't know. And nobody I read knew. They're sharp. But probably, because God says makes flint knives, probably it, it, it was associated with a religious rite. Uh, by the way, the hill, Gibeath Haraloth, that... That name means hill of foreskins. I'm assuming the naming came after the right. I mean, otherwise, they're on the plains going, where should we do this? There's the hill of foreskins, obviously. Interesting name. Who came up with that? (laughs) And why a hill? It's a plain. They're out in the... Never mind. Okay. Verse 4. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. We're going to talk a little bit about that generation and why they were out in the wilderness. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, catch that, the Israelites who had been slaves in in Egypt... Hundreds of years after Abraham lived, they were still circumcising their kids. They were all circumcised, the ones who had come out. Yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness, after they'd come out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. Why did the people of God stop circumcising their kids? I want to know. And we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. And so I read some speculations. It might be right. Uh, But I don't know. But at a minimum, it's got to indicate that there was a brokenness in that relationship between God and His people, right? This is the sign of the covenant. If, if If your children are not circumcised, then they, they've broken the covenant. So at a minimum, the, the, the fact that there were these Israelites who were uncircumcised indicated, and, and actually a whole generation, indicated a massive breakdown in the relationship between God and His people. And so what's God saying? He's brought them across the Jordan River, and, and He's saying, before we go fight a single battle, uh, we're going we're gonna to get this relationship right. We're going to uh, get you current with your obedience in fact, what is God doing? God is, God is in, in His love and mercy saying, I'm actually going to, by saying go get circumcised, I'm saying I'm reaffirming my covenantal relationship with you. You are my people. Even though you're not circumcised, I'm giving you, in a sense, I'm saying uh, let's re-up this relationship. I'm accepting you. 
verse 6. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that He would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom He, God, raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. I actually want to take some time and uh, go back in history a little bit and talk about why that generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Because uh, it is a, a point in Israel's history that we must take note of. There's a strong lesson for us to learn. Remember, what's our memory verse for this month? These things were written down uh, for our benefit, right? What happened to them was remembered in the Bible so that we could learn. The generation that came out of Egypt had seen God work powerfully on their behalf. The ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the crashing down of the waters on the heads of Pharaoh's army, the water coming out of a rock and manna from heaven and, and the cloud of fire by night, I'm sorry, the pillar of fire by night, cloud uh, uh, by day. They had seen God uh, be, be mighty on their behalf. And God brought that generation that he had taken out of Egypt right up to the edge of the promised land, and he said, there it is, the land I promised Abraham to give to you. It's your inheritance. Go take it. I will fight for you. And the people shrunk back in fear, and they, did not, they disobeyed God. Twelve spies, one spy from each of the twelve tribes had gone into the promised land to spy it out and come back and give a report. And the report they gave was, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a desirable land. But ten of the twelve said, but we can't take it. We're not strong enough. There are giants in the land and the, the cities are fortified. And, and if we go in there, they're going to destroy us and crush our children. And, and the people listen to the ten spies rather than the two, Caleb and Joshua, who said, come on, God will fight for us. Don't look at the size of them. Look at the size of our God. But here's what we read, Numbers chapter 14. Here's what the congregation did once they heard the ten, the ten spies with their fearful report. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Well, God did not take the grumbling of His people lightly. Verse 11, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence, 
and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. That's God's first response. I'm going to wipe this entire generation out with the pestilence, and I will disinherit them, and Moses, I'll start over with you, and I will make of you a nation greater than they are. Moses is still a descendant of Abraham, so he's still going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, but that generation to a person would be lost. Well, Moses intercedes and says, God, if you do that, the Egyptians will interpret that as you are impotent to fulfill your promise to these people. And so God backed off from that, but he still judged this faithless and disobedient generation. So in verse 28, we read, God says to Moses, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. They were the two spies that said, come on guys, we can do this. Trust God. But your little ones whom you said would become a prey... I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity. Forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. Anybody want to sign up for, for that? Ooh, I want to know the displeasure of God. Oh, but that's the Old Testament God, not the New Testament God. Hebrews 13:3, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no Old Testament God and New Testament God. There is one God who does not change. And the God of the New Testament, our God, who sits on the throne today, who loves us in Jesus Christ, he still does not appreciate the grumbling and the disobedience of his children. And Hebrews chapter 12 says God disciplines those he loves. And through your faithlessness and your disobedience, you can spend your life underneath the discipline of the Lord. You can, if you want, you can hang out in the wilderness for your entire life, which is allowing sin to reign in control of your life. That's not where life to the full is to be found. Or you can choose to trust God and obey God and experience His blessing. Get into the promised land. Make no mistake, you and I have the power of choice. There are consequences. The Bible says you can't sow to the wind and not expect to reap the whirlwind. Be sure your sins will find you out. God is not mocked, right? You don't have some special relationship with God where the consequences of sin don't fall on you. Yes, they do. They'll fall on me. Right? We talked 
last couple of weeks, we've talked about the fear of the Lord. And we're to cultivate the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? And Pastor James, I loved his analogy last week where he said, I, I think of the fear of the Lord as the surfer's relationship to the ocean. The surfer loves the ocean, is drawn to the ocean, but fears the ocean, understands that the o- you better play by the ocean's rules or the ocean will crush you. But if you do live in harmony with the ocean, you can have a wonderful time. And that, that's, the way, that's life, right? We can relate to, if we relate to God as He's asked us to relate to Him in faith, in obedience... We experience life to the full. But if we are faithless, disobedient, uh, rebellious even, there are consequences to that. If you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you lose your salvation, but you live your life out in the wilderness. And it's better to be in the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses tells us, that as, as harsh as the wilderness was, through the wilderness, God actually did good for His people. He said that um, the wilderness, God, verse 16 of Deuteronomy chapter 8, God who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. See, there's the discipline. I I suspect that for a time, that generation felt like God had abandoned them, forsaken them, discarded them, but He hadn't. He was disciplining them. And He was teaching them humility and trust. And I think they got it. I believe they finally got it. And then they passed that lesson on to their kids, which is why this new generation is such a an example of faith in the Lord. But boy, that, the, uh, that generation that came out of Israel, they didn't get it very quickly. <laughs> in fact, even after God through Moses tells them you're going to wander in the wilderness 40 years, uh, they didn't accept that. they like, no way, we're going, we're going to go into that promised land now. So they weren't going to go, even with God's help, and now that God says, fine, I'm not going to fight for you, you're going to have to live in the wilderness, they said, no, 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 we're going to go in. And Moses tells them, don't do it, you're going to get crushed. And they do it anyways, and they march into the promised land, and the peoples in the hills spank them. And they have to get back out and hang out in the wilderness for 40 years. And there's just story after story of them fighting against uh, God. They're grumbling. They're not obeying the Lord to, down to the very uh, word. And... And, and they keep getting disciplined and disciplined, but they, they seem to finally get it. By the way, God, when God tells you to do something, He's not interested in just sort of big, outlined, basic obedience, but you can, you know, interpret in, you know, within the big parameters, feel free to interpret. Um, I'm off here, but this is actually important. Moses... The first time God says, Moses, I want you to bring water out of a rock to, to, for the people, he says, strike the rock. And when you strike the rock, water will come forth to, for the people. The second time, God says, you speak 
to the rock. And Moses is mad at the people, and so he strikes the rock. And God didn't say, yeah, yeah, that's okay. You know, a little interpretation there, Moses. You know what he said to Moses? Now you don't get to enter the promised land, Moses, because you rebelled against me. I told you to speak to the rock, you hit the rock. God's commands are not open to our interpretation to be applied as we see fit. When he tells us to do something, we do it. Otherwise, we're disobedient, and there are consequences associated with it. Okay, here's the big point I want us to get, which is I want us to say to ourselves, I will fear sin's consequences more than I will missing out on sin's pleasures. Because there's all, there's the, what is temptation? Temptation is sin says you'll be happier if you do what I, I say, and God says you'll be happier if you do what I say, and we then have to make a choice. Who are we going to believe? And, and it really comes down to, do I believe that I'm going to be, you know, better off with the pleasure of sin or with obeying God? Back over to Joshua chapter 5, verse 8. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. The people are camped just a few miles away from uh, the city of Jericho. The enemies are watching them. I would assume if you're an Israelite, you're expecting a counterattack at any time. And then God says, all the fighting men need to go undergo some surgery. And you're thinking, is this really the right time for that? But these, this generation was determined to obey God and trust Him, and so they did. And that was a... They knew their history. Uh, many, many years earlier, the sons of Abraham, one uh, Jacob, actually, his sons... They wanted, they were mad at a town and they wanted to put the town to the sword. And so they deceived the town and they said, hey, hey, we're going to let you become part of us. You just have to have all your men get circumcised. And the, the, the town said, oh, okay, we'll do that. The guys get circumcised and while they're healing up, Jacob's sons go in and butcher the whole town. Not an exemplary story, uh, but, it, but all those Israelites knew that and they, they knew <laughs> we are putting ourselves you know, at military uh, disadvantage, and we are putting ourselves at risk by obeying the Lord. But they did it because they were determined to trust God. And there's a big point. Uh, we trust God to take care of us as we obey Him. Not before we'll obey Him. God, I will start tithing once I'm flush with cash. I will, you know, pay back the IRS once I've got more than I need and I feel like I've got a big surplus. no. You go, do, you go do what God has called you to do, and you trust as you're doing that, you trust Him to take care of you. In fact, that act of faith, you know, the kind of, it's not really nail-biting because you're trusting the Lord, but kind of that, I hope God, uh, you know, how's God going to come through here? I think that that risk-taking faith pleases the Lord and calls forth His blessing in your life. I, I think that's true. So they definitely had to trust God as they obeyed him here. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal in Hebrew sounds like roll. What is the reproach of Egypt? 
What is it that God has rolled away? It's probably the word on the street that God had forsaken His people. Uh, you know, the nations had been watching Israel. They had watched God mightily deliver the nation out of the clutches of Egypt and destroy that, that um, Pharaoh's army. But then they're wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness, and people are going, what's going on over there? And the word on the street was they disobeyed God, and uh, he's abandoned them. <laughs> they're now on their own. And then with this ceremony of the covenant renewal ceremony, God is reclaiming his people and the, the reproach of Egypt. There is no, no longer any, should be any question in anybody's minds that the Israelites are the people of God, that he loves them, he's with them, he will fight for them. Can you imagine the, think about the uh, spiritual, what do, you think that, what do you think that did in Israel when they were, uh, everybody got kind of current with their circumcision? I, I think this was a, I think this really settled up in everybody's hearts. We are right with God. Uh, we are in right fellowship with Him. Our spiritual lives are healthy. Now we can go fight the, the physical battles and be confident He will fight for us. Verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. This is kind of cool. 41 years earlier, it was the Passover night that Israel exited Egypt. Tenth plague, God said, I'm going to send the angel of death through the land of Egypt and take, take out all the firstborn of the humans and the animals. But the angel of death will pass over your homes if you apply the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of your home, the Passover lamb. And you eat that standing up because I'm going to deliver you this very night. And so the angel of death went through the land and many, many Egyptian boys died. Uh, and then the people were broken by this final plague, even Pharaoh, and he said, get out of here. And that very night, the people exited. And now here we are, 40-some years later, on the same, same day, uh, the people are celebrating the Passover in the Promised Land. So it's bookends, right? God began uh, this to set his people free and to put them in the Promised Land, and now it's coming to pass. Pretty exciting. By the way, you couldn't partake of the Passover unless you were circumcised. So that was another reason why they had to get circumcised uh, before the Passover. Verse 11, And the day after the Passover... On that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Where did they get the produce of the land? Did a bunch of merchants come down, you know, out, come out of Jericho and sell them? I doubt it. Uh, we read just a few verses later that Jericho had uh, bottled itself up. The doors were sealed and the people were waiting for the attack they knew was coming. So most likely, the Israelites, by the way, it's harvest time. We know that. We know what time of the year it was. It's harvest time. So probably right outside of Jericho are these fields that are, you know, about ready that the people of Jericho in, intended to come harvest. And the Israelites go out there and they harvest it and they eat. And God had told Israel, I am giving you a land 
cities that you didn't build and orchards that you never planted and harvests that you, hadn't, you didn't do anything about. It, I'm just giving you this land that's already been cultivated and built and it's going to be yours. And so here they are beginning to experience uh, the, the fruits of, of conquest and the fruits of victory. Verse 12, uh, by the way, the unleavened cakes and parched grain, that was about as basic as it got. This was sort of, you know, meal on the go. But it, still, it was the beginning of, of what they were going to experience. Verse 12, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Don't blow past this. For 40 years, the nation of Israel had been fed miraculously by God with manna. They woke up in the morning, and manna was covering the ground. And we read in, uh, we read in Joshua. Nope. We read in Deuteronomy. Nope. It's Exodus. Sorry, I got all my tabs here. Exodus chapter 16. Uh, in verse 14, we read that uh, manna was on the face of the wilderness, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground, called frosted flakes. Nope, actually, they didn't call it that. They called it something else, which is over here. Uh, what verse is that? Oh, yeah, 31. They called it, I'm, I'm off somehow. Anyway, they call it manna, and it tastes, it, it's like coriander, and it tastes like honey. 31, 16. Oh, yeah, coriander seed, white, the taste of it was like wafers made with honey, and the people called it manna. And, and God said, you collect an omer a day per person in your household. Don't collect more than that, and don't keep it. Don't try to keep any over till the next day. But the people who just never thought the Lord's command was something to be obeyed precisely, many of them gathered more than an omer, tried to keep it over to the next day, not trusting that it would be there the next day, and worms went all through it. God said, look, I won't send manna on the Sabbath because I don't want you working on the Sabbath. I'll give you the day before the Sabbath. I'll give you twice as much. You can collect two omers, and it won't spoil, and that's the case. Now, for 40 years, by the way, why manna? Because the wilderness was harsh and the people couldn't grow crops and feed themselves. And God is committed to providing for his people, right? He's going to take care of his people. And he had to do it in a miraculous way because they were hanging out in the wilderness. And so he gives them manna for 40 years. Every morning, they sent the kids out and said, go get the, you know, collect the food for the day, kids. And they would collect their omer and come back. And that was what they ate. And then one morning, actually five, five days after crossing the Jordan River, you know, they step outside to collect the manna, and they go, is it, the, is it the Sabbath? What's going on? And pretty quickly, word gets up to Moses, and they're like, what is happening here? For 40 years, there has never been a day without manna on the ground except for the Sabbaths. What's going on? And, and God, through Moses, tells the people, you're now in the promised land. You can now 
go find food for yourselves. And God will take care of you. He's now going to take care of you in an ordinary way rather than an extraordinary way. I don't think God... Uh, what we learn from Proverbs is that God provides for us, and usually it's through our hard work, <laughs> right? And uh, so He gives us the energy to go work and, uh, and then feed ourselves and our, and our families. That's the normal way, and He was not going to break out of the ordinary unless it's necessary, which it was in the wilderness. But what a massive, what a massive new day. Wow. God, we now got to come up with a whole new system for feeding ourselves, and it's, well, it requires that we go conquer these peoples, doesn't it? Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses, the Bible says the greatest prophet, is forward-seeing, he's pre-seeing that the day in which the people of God are living in the promised land, and they're kind of, they're rolling in the dough, and they're, they're fat and happy, and and they, and he realizes when you are not ex- feeling a, pra- a need for God to come through, the danger is you forget about God. And so we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, he's thinking about that day, and Moses says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest... When you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground. Moses is very aware of what they've just been through. Where there was no water, who brought you the water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with a man that your fathers didn't know that he might humble you and test you and do good to you in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you wealth and power, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. In other words, You've got all these good things because God is fulfilling a promise he made to Abraham hundreds of years earlier, not because you're special. But what happens, what happens when you think to yourself, what I have, I got by my own power. It belongs to me, and I have the right to then determine how I'm going to use this stuff. But as a Christian... We are to say, like James, every good thing comes to me from God. I like to say, uh, I I regularly say out loud, God, everything that I have that is good comes from you. It all belongs to you. I, I am your servant. I am a steward. Help me to remember that uh, it all belongs to you, and I'm just, how do you want me to use your stuff, Lord? And another thing that I try to, I try to, especially when things are going nice in my life, I declare my dependence. God, I am dependent upon you. Even right now where I'm not really feeling, you know, at risk, I, I'm still totally dependent on you for my very breath. That's what Moses is talking about. Always, always, always remember the Lord. Always cultivate a heart of dependence and humility on him. And maybe I'm wrong, but I tend to think 
maybe he won't need to throw me in the wilderness to learn some, some humility if I stay humble, right? <laughs> humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, we are, we are advised. Otherwise, he will humble us, right? Pride goeth before a fall. So let's stay humble. Let's stay thankful. And so I think the, what we need to say here is, I will recognize God's provision in the ordinary. Right? God is taking care of you. You know, wherever you, the job you have, God gave you that job in order to provide for you. It's still God who is providing for you. There's then a, um, an encounter Joshua has with the angel of the Lord, the uh, commander of the Lord's army. And that, but that kind of leads into chapter 6, which is all about the fall of Jericho, which we'll talk about two weeks from now. Uh, but let me just say, go back to the big idea. The big idea is this. Before you, know, before you fight your spiritual battles, you better make sure that your relationship with God is healthy. Because you're only going to win those spiritual battles if God is fighting for you, and He's only going to fight for you if you are living in obedience. So, uh, you want you know, want the uh, fruit of the Spirit more in your life. You want to um, overcome a, a sin habit in your life. You know, don't focus on willpower. Uh, you focus on your relationship with the Lord. You cultivate your trust in Him, your dependence on Him, and and you will you will experience Him working in your life. Uh, one more verse, which is about the, decept, the deceit of sin, right? Take care that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is talking to you, talking to me, trying to deceive us, trying to convince us that we'd be better off sinning than obeying God. But as we cultivate our relationship with God, as we taste and see that the Lord is good and we begin to uh, understand at a deeper level uh, at, a, at a more fundamental gut level, everything that God tells me to do is for my best. He knows best. He wants the best for me. I'm best off when I trust him and do it his way. You know what? It makes it harder for sin to deceive you. So you focus on your relationship with the Lord and you will begin to experience victory spiritually in your lives. And invite the band back up here. What is it the Lord's speaking to you today? We only defeat sin when God fights for us, and God only fights for us when we're obedient. Do you need to get current with your obedience? Do you need to fear sin's consequences more than sin's pleasures? Do you need to take care of, do you need to trust God to take care of you as you obey Him? You need to recognize God's provision for you in the ordinary and that everything you have comes from Him? Do you need to prioritize pressing into God's love? Let's pray. God, Your Word is a lamp unto our feet, our light unto our path. These things have been written down for our instruction. And so we choose to open our ears and to open our minds and to open our hearts and to submit our wills to your word, God. We don't want to be stiff-necked and hard-hardened and rebellious and grumbling like uh, the Israelites 
who wound up in the wilderness. We want to be like that, their, like their children who say, doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to obey God and trust him to take care of me. Help us to have those kind of hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.